Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Edwina Lowe, product specialist within the Data Assets and Alpha Group. Today, I'm joined by Eloise Goulder, our global team head. So Eloise, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's great to be here. At the end of last year, we recorded a 2022 year in review podcast, which had a lot of traction with our listeners. So given that we're at the midpoint of the year, I thought it'd be worth having a check-in to discuss how things have played out thus far this year, what positioning looks like now, and perhaps if we have time, we could discuss our expectations for the remainder of the year. That sounds like a great plan. Excellent. So could we start high level and discuss key cross-asset moves so far this year? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say it's been quite a roller coaster year so far, partly because of the magnitude of certain asset class movements and partly because expectations around growth in so many regions have had to be revised and haven't played out as we might have expected. So to answer your question, Edwina, what have been the major cross-asset moves? I think the two I'd really focus on would be equities and bonds, particularly shorter-dated bonds. So within global equities, we've seen this very strong rally so far this year. So if we look at MSCI World, for example, it's up a full 12% so far in the first six months of the year. And within equities, US markets have been particularly strong. So we see the S&P 500 up 15% year to date. And in fact, we see the tech-oriented NASDAQ 100 up nearly 40% year to date. So really strong equity performance, particularly in those markets and spaces. And then second of all, if we look cross-asset, then I'd also highlight bonds and in particular two-year bonds and shorter-dated bond yields, which have really risen quite considerably year-to-date, reflecting, I think, a combination of stronger growth expectations and a view that inflation will remain higher for longer and that central banks will need to remain on their hawkish path. So, for example, the US two-year has risen from about 4.2% at the start of this year to over 5% today. And then the German two-year has risen from about 2.5% at the start of this year to over 3% now. And the UK two-year has risen even more from around 3.4% or 3.5% at the start of this year to over 5.4% today. And that speaks to inflation proving to be particularly persistent in the UK. I'm sure we'll come back to that one. Thank you, Eloise, for setting the scene there. It certainly has been a roller coaster year. You mentioned that moves in equities have surpassed expectations. Could you go back and remind us what those expectations were? Yes, definitely. So if I had to describe expectations going into this year in one word, I would say cautious. So if we look at what strategists on the street were forecasting back in November and December when outlooks were made, on average, they expected about 5% upside to US equities or the S&P 500 throughout the course of 2023. So that's obviously in marked contrast to the 15% upside we've already seen to the S&P 500 through the first half of this year. Second of all, if we hark back to the podcast that you and I recorded, Edwina, back in December, our year in review, we really tried to 
provide a balanced view, I think, there. We articulated a bull case and we articulated a bear case for markets going forwards. But even our bull case was not that rosy looking back. Our bull case was that the US economy would avert a hard landing. And in reality, of course, the US economy has been pretty strong since then. We can come back to that. But it just highlights the fact that we were all much more cautious and guarded about the strength of the economy back in December and at the start of the year. And finally, if we look at sell-side economist forecasts for 2023 at the start of this year, they were very muted on the whole, expecting around 0% real GDP growth through the course of 2023 in major economies, including the US and in Europe. I think to be precise, economists expected just 30 bips of GDP growth in 2023 for the US economy and slightly negative growth in the euro area. And in fact, those forecasts have been revised up sequentially ever since December. So all in all, as I said, I would say that expectations going into this year were pretty muted. Fascinating. Thank you. So focusing on equities, with US equities in particular performing so well, what would you say have been the key drivers of this outperformance? Yeah. So first of all, I'd say the driver of outperformance has been the fact that growth has come in much stronger than we expected. So we actually said at the start of this year that the upcoming US recession had been the most well-broadcast recession in history. And lo and behold, that well-broadcast recession just hasn't happened yet, at least. So I mentioned earlier that economists on the street were forecasting very little growth, just 30 bips of growth for the full year of 2023. Those forecasts on the street have since been revised up to 130 bips, I think. And our economists are even more bullish than the street for the full year. They expect growth at 170 basis points. So bottom line is we have really seen these upgrades to growth. And I'm sure that's one of the drivers for equity outperformance this year. But then secondly, I'll say the starting point for equities was pretty low, and we shouldn't forget that. I mean, through 2022, the S&P 500 lost 20%, and in fact, the Nasdaq 100 lost over 30% amid all those concerns around inflation and the war in Ukraine and this possible looming recession. So the starting point going into this year was low, and perhaps even more significantly, positioning going into this year was low. We saw selling from multiple investor types, including hedge funds and the retail investor, through much of 2022. And through December 2022 in particular, we saw hedge funds reload on shorts, presumably hedging against some of these risks. It's worth caveating that positioning really seemed to trough on our metrics in Q3 of last year. So it had risen a little bit by year end, but positioning was still much lighter than historical averages when we were at the end of last year. So bottom line is the starting point seemed to be very low going into this year. So going back to your question, what have been the key drivers of US equity outperformance this year with the S&P 500 up a full 15%, I'd really say it's these two major drivers. One is that growth expectations have surprised positively in quite a considerable way. And the other one is that our starting point in terms of both equity prices and equity positioning was very low. Really interesting. Thank you. And why do you think there have been these upside surprises? Yeah, so I think this is going to the heart of the debate, really. Why has the US economy and to some extent the global economy been so resilient and so strong relative to expectations this year? 
And it's a tough question, and I definitely won't pretend to have all the answers there. I would point to two things, though. So one of them is the consumer cash pile and this idea that many market participants underestimated the size of the consumer cash pile and underestimated the pent-up demand for services in particular post-COVID. And in reality, it seems to have been much larger than expected. And in fact, Andrew Tyler in our team has done a lot of work on this and he's spoken about this on prior podcasts. So it is worth listening to them to hear about this particular point in more detail. So I think that's one argument explaining strength and resilience in US growth. I think the other driver of upside surprise for US and to some extent global growth expectations has been the result of technology, advancements in technology and hope around the power of data and machine learning and AI. And there's no way we could have done this podcast without talk of AI and ChatGPT. Yes, exactly. And ChatGPT was obviously launched in November last year, but there have been successive developments in this space ever since then. And also, critically, there have been positive comments from various US corporates around the power of adoption of this sort of technology within their organisations. And that's really stimulated a debate as to whether this tech and AI revolution, one could say, could really turbocharge growth potential and productivity gains and company efficiencies. And not only could this be very positive for growth, but it could also potentially be quite disinflationary, which could help solve the inflation problem, which really dominated discussions last year. That's obviously the rosy picture. And in reality, I think it's much more nuanced than that. But If you look at the best performers in equity markets this year, I already said that US equities have outperformed global equities and that the tech-oriented NASDAQ has outperformed the S&P 500, for example. But even more pointed than that, we see that our AI beneficiaries basket, which is a basket of more than 50 names in the US, is up almost 50% year to date. So it certainly speaks to this idea that tech and AI and productivity gains and growth potential here is really driving some of the outperformance this year. Absolutely. And I'd like to pick up on that inflation point, given that inflation has been front and centre this year. Could you discuss the inflation narrative and whether inflation concerns have started to fade? Yeah. So I would argue that this was really front and centre last year when we look at the key concerns that were driving equity markets last year. And if you were to look at the strength of equity performance so far this year, as we were just discussing, one could easily assume that those concerns have now abated and that inflation is no longer an issue. And in line with that view, we have seen quite significant declines in CPI inflation globally and particularly in the US. So I do think to some extent you could argue that those concerns have faded And inflation is no longer a top risk that uh, market participants are watching at this stage. Having said all of that, my view is that there are still lingering concerns around inflation, partly because core inflation could remain very sticky. And in fact, our fixed income strategists were flagging just last week that core inflation is looking quite persistent at this stage. And they expect core inflation in the US to stabilise at just over 3% during the final three months of this year. So still pretty elevated versus target. 
But I think inflation could also be an issue because in other regions outside the US, and especially in Europe and most notably in the UK, inflation is proving to be much more sticky. So my view is this debate isn't over. AI productivity gains could create a disinflationary force and help the inflation problem in the medium term. But I think the persistence of core inflation could actually become a real concern for markets in the coming months. And in fact, going back to the first question you asked me, Edwina, about the major cross-asset moves this year, I mentioned equities, but I also mentioned two-year bond yields, which have risen quite considerably this year. And I think this is linked to the fact that market participants largely do expect higher for longer central bank base rates. And this is linked to somewhat elevated core inflation, plus the lack of a recession in the US, which in turn has failed to completely stamp out inflation. And markets haven't risen in a straight line, have they? I mean, the US markets were actually pretty stable going into mid-March. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I've highlighted a lot of the positives driving equity returns this year, those positives around growth expectations and AI hopes. But actually, in the first few months of the year, particularly for US markets, there were several other concerns really dominating. First of all, in March, we had the regional banks crisis and concerns around the impact of rapidly rising interest rates on the value of shorter dated assets and capital held by banks. And it was in that second week of March when the KRE, that's the US Regional Banks ETF, fell, I think, every day that week. And I think it fell about 25% in the first half of March alone. So we can't forget those major concerns which were dominating just a few months ago. And then second of all, in May, we had those debt ceiling concerns. They were really dominating our client conversations then. And it wasn't until late May, I think May the 27th, that Biden and McCarthy struck that deal to increase the debt ceiling and cap federal spending and alleviate those concerns. So going back to your question, Edwina, equities certainly haven't rallied in a straight line. And I think it was really in early June where we seem to have this void or this vacuum of bad news for once. Debt ceiling pressures were resolved. Regional bank concerns were abated for the time being, at least. Positioning was still relatively light versus history. And then we had all this positive chatter around AI. And I think with the huge benefit of hindsight, this helps explain why US markets have been so strong since then. Thank you, Eloise. That's all very interesting. So we've spent quite a lot of time focusing on US markets and US outperformance, but could we turn to the other regions? Definitely. And we have seen a lot of regional variation if we look at equity markets this year. So let me start with Europe because Europe started off this year as really a stellar outperformer. And you mentioned earlier, Edwina, that US markets had been reasonably stable into March, but actually European markets were really rallying hard through January, February and March this year. So what was driving that outperformance in Europe? Well, I think we saw significantly improving macro data if we look at PMIs, for example. They were sequentially improving all the way up until April. And the European economies did manage to, by and large, avoid recession through winter. And expectations were particularly low and positioning was particularly low in Europe going into this year. So I think all of those factors led to European markets outperforming through the first three months of this year. 
But since then, many of those tailwinds have faded. And in fact, stagflation type risks have since come to the fore. So inflation, it's still far higher in the euro area versus the US. And so the ECB has to hike more than the Fed at this stage. Macro data, including PMIs, turned down in the euro area from May. And so perhaps it's been no surprise that European markets have really begun to underperform US markets since mid-March. They're now up only about 5% year to date. This European market underperformance is very much a call we've been pushing for. Arguably, we were too early on this one, but it is something we believe will continue to play out. And it is worth listening to our prior podcasts with Krupa Patel on our arguments for why this should continue. So we've discussed the euro area. Could you turn to the UK specifically now? Yeah, so I think the UK market is a fascinating one, given that, as we discussed earlier, inflation is proving to be just so sticky here. So unlike the US and the euro area, where CPI is at least sequentially falling month on month, UK CPI was actually flat month on month in this last print, up at 8.7%. And in fact, core inflation rose month on month. It was at 7.1%, which is the highest level since the early 1990s. So it's clear that we have an inflation problem here in the UK and that the Bank of England does have to hike more. And in fact, market participants are pricing in nearly another 150 basis points of further hikes, which is far more than is expected from the Fed or the ECB at this stage. And this all links to the point I mentioned earlier that the UK two-year bond yield has shot up far more this year than for other countries. So I think it's fair to say that concerns around the growth inflation dynamic are particularly rife here in the UK. And in fact, the FTSE 250, which is more domestically exposed than the FTSE 100, is now down on the year, which is obviously in sharp contrast with global equities up well over 10% on the year. And the other point I'd mention on the UK, given that we're talking cross-asset, is that sterling has been remarkably resilient in this context. I think the pound versus the dollar is up 20% from lows last September. Seemingly, the pound is buoyed by higher near-term interest rates, and it appears to be undeterred by weaker growth concerns here in the UK. Great. So we've discussed the US, Europe and the UK. Could we turn our attention now to Asia in the context of expectations and surprises we've seen in the year? Well, there have certainly been a number of surprises in Asia, and I think most notable of them has been China. If we go back to December and January, we really were looking to China as the bright spot in the global economy. And I think we were all excited about the demand potential from a reopening economy and the idea that The consumer had plenty of pent-up spending power post-COVID that could finally be unleashed as the prolonged lockdowns were eased. So it's certainly a region where we had high hopes. And indeed, economists across the street, including our own here at JP Morgan, were sequentially revising their forecast for 2023 upwards throughout the early parts of this year. And it was really in April this year that we saw peak excitement in terms of the reopening potential. I think we saw consensus GDP forecasts for 2023 at over 6% by April, having started the year at more like 
0.4%. But sadly, data and expectations have since really come down in China. We've seen consistent misses to macro surprises and consensus forecasts have begun to fall. I think consensus is now expecting around 5.5% growth for the full year of 2023. And in fact, they've fallen more dramatically for Q2 for this year. So China has sadly really ended up disappointing versus expectations. And indeed, China's local CSI 300 index is now down 5 or 6% on the year. And coming back to Asia, the bright spot has really turned out to be Japan. The topics in Japan is up nearly 20% this year. And we've seen a lot of positivity in Japan around the Japanese growth potential and easy monetary policy and the lack of inflation risks in Japan and corporate governance reforms. And in fact, Buffett has been investing heavily in the region, which I think has been another positive boost for other investors. So, Japan has been a high conviction bullish call from Krupa in our team. And I know, Edwina, she actually articulated this view with you in a podcast back in April, I think, A New Dawn for Japanese Equities. And she's been articulating that in her daily pieces. So yes, lots of surprises in Asia. And I think China and Japan are the two markets to really single out there. So if I pause for a moment, Eloise, the recurring theme in our conversation thus far has been surprises and shift in expectations which must mean a challenging period for the investor to navigate. Yes, indeed. Well, put most simply, we came into this year with that cautious narrative, cautious in terms of what our economists were expecting for GDP growth, cautious in terms of what strategists were forecasting, and importantly, cautious in terms of the positioning backdrop. I mean, we came from 2022, a full year when the S&P 500 lost 20%. And in that year, as I mentioned earlier, we saw selling from multiple investor types, including hedge funds and the retail investor. So, of course, coming into this year, it's fair to say that investors were quite lightly positioned. I'll come to the numbers in a second. And therefore, as the equity markets have rallied, that has been painful, certainly for shorts. And I mentioned earlier that shorts were added particularly in December this year. So, those shorts in particular would then have been painful as markets rallied. To put some numbers on this, we track multiple types of investors via our positioning intelligence team's tactical positioning monitor. So this tracks hedge fund positioning from our prime book, CTA positioning, retail positioning, mutual fund positioning, among a few other sources. And we have history going back for eight years. And coming into this year, our tactical positioning monitor metric was well below average, suggesting that positioning was lighter than average to a magnitude of minus 0.6 standard deviations. So, of course, the rally in the markets was somewhat of a pain trade for those positions. Absolutely, that makes sense. So, talking of pain trades, are there any others that we've seen? Yes. Well, actually, almost all of the surprises versus expectations that we've discussed previously have been somewhat pain trades in that investors weren't necessarily fully positioned for them. So, to highlight a few, I think most notable would be the outperformance in tech and 
AI beneficiaries. I mentioned earlier that our 50-something strong AI beneficiary basket is up around 50% in the first six months of this year. And that was certainly a surprise versus expectations. And many investors had got quite short of the tech theme in 2022, given high inflation back then and this perceived need to raise rates, which could have been a negative for the longer duration assets like technology. So positioning in tech was not heavy going into this year. And therefore, the rally in tech has certainly been one of the pain trades that I'd identify. Another one would be Europe versus the US and these gyrations we've seen in markets. As we just mentioned, European markets were outperforming through January, February and to mid-March, but have since sharply underperformed as many of those tailwinds around growth have since waned. And again, I think that's been a pain trade for investors because we see hedge fund positioning in Europe really increase through the early parts of this year as investors were caught short and were forced to go long Europe. And then, lo and behold, that theme reversed and Europe has since underperformed. And I'd argue that's been pretty painful for many. And finally, talking of regional surprises, we were just discussing China and the reopening tailwinds at the start of the year, but disappointments since then. And again, we saw many investors go net long into China in the early parts of this year, only to be disappointed as China macro data fell from April this year. So I think many pain trades here when we look at both the absolute strength in equity markets, but also the regional gyrations. And in fact, just to add one more to this list, I would say that large cap outperformance as a whole has been a surprise and painful for many. So this is not just the outperformance of the tech theme, because of course, we see the larger cap, mega cap tech names, for example, outperforming in the US. But even in Europe, we've seen large caps really outperform over over the last three months, which has certainly been painful for many hedge funds who've been longer in the smaller cap tail. And it does raise some really interesting questions as to why this is going on. And my theory is that this is partly a function of the tech and the AI revolution, so to speak, being disproportionately positive for larger cap companies who can benefit from economies of scale and rolling out these new platforms across their business models. So I I mean, it's a fascinating area and it's one for a larger discussion. But again, I'd say large cap outperformance over the last three months could certainly be highlighted as another version of a pain trade. So coming back to positioning, investors were largely cautious coming into the start of the year and things have played out in a rather unexpected way. How have investors reacted and where does that leave positioning now? Yeah, that's a great question because all of that cautiousness that I've said a number of times that investors had going into the year is certainly not the case now. In fact, at this stage, positioning is actually looking slightly heavy versus history. So the bottom line is, how have investors reacted? They have been buying whether they've been buying because of the more rosy growth outlook and the potential from tech and AI and inflation falling, whether it's been that bullish narrative or whether it's investors simply being forced into the market because shorts were proving too painful. 
for whatever reason, we have seen plenty of investor buying across a number of investor sources, which means that when we now look at that aggregate tactical positioning monitor that I mentioned earlier, capturing positioning from a number of investor types, it is now looking slightly heavy versus history. It's actually at the plus 0.5 standard deviation, so plus half a standard deviation heavier than history. So my take now is that the bar is quite high at this stage and investors are expecting a lot more from equities and the growth backdrop at this stage. And when we think about upcoming catalysts, I mean, this Wednesday, I think we have US CPI. And then, of course, we have Q2 results season. So corporates reporting on how the last quarter has really been for them about to start. Will they be good enough at this stage? Because the bar that the investors are now placing on those companies is much higher than was the case back in January. So my obvious next question is, what's our view and what does this mean for markets? But in order to address this question, we need to look at data, given that we use data to inform our views. And as a reminder to our listeners, our team's primary remit is making trading data sets and data-driven insights available to our buy-side clients. So how would you say the data landscape has evolved so far this year, given everything we've seen? Yes, that's a great question, Edwina. And the first thing I'll say, and perhaps this is self-evident, is that the demand for data from our clients is as strong as ever. And we are witnessing a huge volume of asks into the team for these data sets and associated insights. And we do continue to make our data sets available via Data Query and also our Fusion platform. But in terms of the themes that I'd really isolate in terms of the demand we've seen this year in particular, I think I'd highlight two. One of them would be the rise in demand for textual data. And perhaps this is no surprise given the availability of tools to analyse that data and, of course, ChatGPT this year. But there's been this real proliferation in sentiment models and natural language processing and this desire from our more quantitative clients to access information that perhaps previously was more readily available to our more fundamental clients. So all sorts of textual data, even the written content from our team, there's been a lot of demand for that. And then the second area I'd mention is Asia and Asia retail sentiment and this desire for investors to have a lens on what the Asian retail investor is thinking at this stage. And previously, ever since COVID started really in 2020, we've seen this significant demand for retail sentiment and trading activity in US markets because, of course, US retail share of volumes increased dramatically from 2020 onwards. But also, it's very significant in Asia. In fact, we think that the retail share of volume across China, South Korea, Taiwan and Vietnam, for example, in many cases is over 50% of volumes. So even higher than is the case in the US. And therefore, the importance of having a lens on what that retail investor is doing and how their sentiment is, is more important than ever. And I spent two weeks in Asia seeing clients back in April across Tokyo and Hong Kong and Singapore. And it was absolutely fascinating. I learned so much from speaking to investors there. But I would say the the single most important piece of feedback I received is we would like to see some form of lens on retail sentiment in the region. Fascinating. 
And given that we're very client-led in terms of what we focus on and a new data set creation, is it fair to say that we're looking into this? Yes. I mean, as you say, Edwina, we're constantly creating new data sets and we are using the client demand as our primary gauge for where we can focus on those new data sets. And so the two themes I just discussed, both the rise in demand for textual data, but also the demand to have a lens on the Asian retail investor are both top of mind for us as we develop new data sets. And it is worth saying that we're always keen to hear from more clients on the data that they really want to see from our team. So a message to our listeners, really, please do continue to reach out if there are areas that you'd like us to look into. So we've spent the majority of our conversation looking backwards at how this year has evolved. And I know you'll be recording a podcast with our US-based colleagues later this week with a forward-looking lens. But just briefly for our listeners today, could you touch on the outlook from your perspective? Yes. So the first thing I'd say when you ask about the outlook is positioning is looking slightly stretched versus history, particularly in segments like US tech, specifically US software and semiconductors. So I would say the bar is reasonably high, much higher than it was at the start of this year, and therefore markets are more vulnerable to disappointment. And therefore, my headline view would be reasonably cautious at this stage as we look ahead to global equity markets and US equity markets. And it is worth saying that our house view from our research colleagues is relatively cautious at this stage. The second thing I'd say in terms of outlook is that macro momentum now looks much better in the US versus Europe. And as a team, we would expect US equities to continue to outperform European equities. And we've discussed this a lot over the last couple of months. And as I mentioned, Krupa Patel has written quite a lot on this topic. And it's worth noting that our flagship market timing signal from our team, Signal from the Noise, is currently relatively neutral on US markets, but cautious for European markets. And similarly, our sentiment toolkits called Bull Bear Buzz and they leverage web search trends, they're currently more positive on US markets right now versus Europe. And then finally, in terms of the outlook, I'm not going to make a prediction here, but I would say two really key trends to watch are, first of all, the impact of AI and use of big data on corporate earnings. We can all make and discuss the medium-term predictions, which I love doing, and they are critically important. But I think the real question right now is how much is that going to shape Q2 earnings for corporates, i.e. earnings for the quarter we've just had? And what are corporates going to say about this at results season? And arguably, the rally we've seen in AI beneficiaries, so to speak, has been somewhat indiscriminate this year. And perhaps there's now a chance to differentiate here and enormous opportunities for investors to be differentiating between the true winners for this theme and those that are not. And then the final theme I would really be watching is the large versus small cap theme. It's been really fascinating to see the outperformance of large caps, of large caps coming back to the fore, reversing a trend which, particularly in Europe, has not been the case over the last decade. And the question, I think, is, is this a structural theme that's here to stay linked to economies of scale with tech investment? And that could really be a theme worth watching. Thank you, Eloise. That's probably a good moment to wrap up on. 
What an eventful year we've had so far. Yes. Well, it's been a real pleasure to discuss today. Thanks, Edwina. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this bi-weekly podcast series. If you have any feedback for us or if you'd like to get in touch, please go to our website, jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence, where you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we will close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, they are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.